From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. While most of the SEC was sidelined over the weekend due to COVID cancellations, Kyle Trask and the Gators took center stage on Saturday night against Arkansas and Felipe Franks. And once the dust settled in the swamp, the Gators rolled 63-35 and vaulted Trask into the upper echelon of the Heisman race. On today's show, we'll get to know sophomore cornerback Kyer Elam and find out what it's like going up against what is possibly the nation's best offense every day in practice. Then, FloridaGators.com's senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry join us for a roundtable discussion about Trask's rising star, the state of the Gator defense, the impending start of Florida basketball, and history's most underrated players in the PAT. But first, many of the greatest Gators come from families that are inextricably tied to the orange and blue. And when you see the last name Elam, you probably recall Matt Elam, a veteran of the Muschamp era known for his bone-crushing hits. Current cornerback and rapidly rising star Kyer Elam counts Matt as an uncle, and on top of that, his dad Abraham played in the NFL. Given that, you'd probably be surprised to know Kyer wasn't even allowed to play football until he tried his hand at a host of other sports, as we discovered during our visit with the native of Riviera Beach, Florida. Um, so my first my first love was basketball. That was my main sport, you know, uh, growing up. I was uh, pretty good at it. I played point guard. I was always, you know, tough kid, uh, you know, did all the dirty work. But I also handled the pressure of a press, you know, bring the ball up court, make smart decisions. So I think that helped translate in football. And then defensively, that was, that was probably my greatest strength. You know, I always wanted to lock down a defender and slide my feet. So I think that helps that corner a lot. Um, I played baseball, uh, ran track. I definitely ran track. Um, that helped me improve my speed for football and explosiveness. Yeah, you were already saying that, you know, playing basketball and, and being a point guard, that translated to this part of your football game, track helped. Were you always sort of competing, thinking, this is how I'll use this when I do get to play football? Was it always sort of that, that mindset? Um, so what my, so my, so what my dad called it, well, I was, my dad was like, he was hardly around when I was, uh, growing up. So, but he used to call it, uh, when I was in high school, he used to call it like, cross training. So basically after football season, I go right into basketball and after basketball season, I go right into track. So all that was just cross training, you know, basketball helping with me, my press technique, you know, uh, guarding wide receivers and track helped me with my speed and explosiveness down the field speed and then. And then after track season, I'll be training for football again. So, you know, I'll do all of my football workouts. So it was all like just the, something that like add these skills to my game from different sports. Mm-hmm. So once you started playing football, once you finally had that opportunity, what got you hooked on it? I mean, besides the fact that everyone in your family played, why did you love football once you started playing? Uh, I just love to compete. And then when I, when I started playing, I wasn't good. So, you know, Every year I got I got better, so that really motivated me because you know once I touched a little success, I wanted even more, and I wanted even more, so it made me work even more harder. You know now I'm just aiming to be great, so that's my great that's my number one goal is to be great. So you have a a, a pedigree of defensive backs, right? Your uncle was defensive back, your dad was defensive back. Was that always the route for you? What what made you gravitate to that spot on the field? Other than that, uh, my whole family wanted me to play quarterback. Uh, 
growing up, like my first two years of playing football, uh, summer my seventh grade year, eighth grade year, I played quarterback. In ninth grade year, I played in high school. The summer in ninth grade, I, I played quarterback. And then, I don't know, I just, I think my length, because I was already six foot, like going into high school. So I thought my length and then, I just love to compete and be on that island. So I thought corner would be a better fit for me than quarterback. I think quarterback, I had to rely on blockers and receivers to get open. So I just wanted to rely on myself. That's really why I played corner. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so in high school, recruiting picks up for you. You're getting interest from Clemson, FSU, Georgia, Miami, Notre Dame, Ohio State. Uh, what do you remember about that time and that process when you started getting those major offers? It was pretty cool. You know, um, my mom, she always made sure I stayed humble. And um, I think it didn't really go to my head at all. I think um, it was it was a good blessing. It was big blessings, you know, um, for me to be able to visit schools and have college pay for, for free. But, you know, um, where I'm from, um, not a lot of kids get that opportunity. So I just always stay grateful. And um, I think it's pretty, pretty good recruiting process, I guess. So when Florida gets in the mix there, what ultimately sways you to the Gators? What did Florida have that the other schools didn't? Um, you know, Florida had the most pros and the least cons for me and my fa- well, my family and I. Um, you know, I, I really believe what, in what Coach Muller was uh, building. Uh, I, I want to be developed by the best, and I want to uh, elevate my game to the highest level possible. And I want an opportunity to play early because I know experience builds your, you know, game even more and more. So. Um, I think Florida had all three of those, and they uh, academic-wise, you know, top six school in the country. Yeah, I think it was top seven at the time. So I know academics, you couldn't beat that. Um, only school probably could beat that was Stanford, and I was getting recruited by them. But you know, uh, Florida was definitely a, had the, the edge. So most people know that your uncle is Matt Elam. He wasn't here that that long ago. Uh, how yeah. much sway did did Uncle Matt have in the final decision? He give you a little little bit of a push toward the Gators? No, he he really didn't. He said, it, I mean, it was all up to me. Um, he didn't want to push me anywhere because he went. He went where he felt comfortable. He didn't want me to go anywhere just because the name or anything like that. That's why. That's why my family. My family not big on pushing uh, anywhere. Anywhere. You know, they want to go. They want even with the football thing. They didn't want me to just play football because you know that was just a tradition in my household. Like they wanted to play football because I really cared and I really wanted to play. So that's why I probably I wasn't able to play when I was younger. When you told him you were going to Florida, though, how excited was he? You must have been pretty pumped, right? Yeah, he was there, but he like he waited to everybody else to find out. He never asked me where I was wow. going until signing day. Like when I was in the chair and made my decision, he was right in the front row, like excited as everybody else was to see where I was going. And then when I uh, when I did it, he was so excited. But yeah. So okay, so you come into the program and you said playing early was important to you. Obviously, you need good mentorship and you need leadership to follow for that to happen. What do you remember about when you came in? the players that were most instrumental for your development? I think CJ and Marco really, I learned a lot from those guys on what to expect and how to play this thing and how to, you know, how to work out, like how to train. Yeah, I think those guys, CJ and Marco, and then the veteran safeties like Sean Davis, um, Brad Stewart and Steiner really showed me like how things go around here and um, what it takes, you know, to win games and just what to expect. Mm -hmm. There's so many players so many players make the biggest jump sometimes from freshman to sophomore year. Um, but then COVID hits right between your freshman, and your sophomore year, which disrupted uh, off season workouts, spring ball, et cetera. What were some of the challenges that COVID presented in your development and, and how do you feel like you overcame them? Um, you know, COVID, we couldn't be, we couldn't be on campus. Um, 
So I was back home. We weren't allowed to do spring ball, so I was, so we couldn't really tackle. But I was definitely getting putting the work in with my, my father and my uncle all all the time I was uh, back home. So I think uh, that really prepared me for the season. And then like reaction, um, like reaction at corner, like you have to react to whatever the wide receiver is doing or whatever the running backs or whoever has the ball, you have to go tackle them. So I think that really um, affected like the first couple games of the season. Like it's like kind of, it was tough kind of trying to mimic that back at home. But, you know, after a few games, you know, I kind of got used to tackling. Um, I think that's the, that's the only struggle really really was and then being able to bond with my teammates too that chemistry you know I couldn't do that because of COVID but you know I think it's it's we, we're overcoming it now I think the defense is getting way better and I think I'm improving and even though I got scored on last week I think uh I think that was because I I, I, I thought I knew to play but it, they ran a different one so I was just sitting and waiting in it for something that never happened but you know I something to learn from and I got to trust, but verify. But. Well, it's funny because, I mean, you're you're very analytical about your own performance. And I've read stories from, you know, throughout the season where you've talked about a specific play where, where you know that you came up short. I mean, how much of how much of that comes from working with your dad, working with your uncle, and truly understanding what it takes to be great? They really showed me, like, what the value of hard work and what successful people look like. Like, they didn't just... Oh, this is what I how I did it. This is how you should do it. And like they they really showed me how like the greatest people they play with. Like my dad used to send me clips of like Darrell Revis. Like he's probably the best corner he's ever seen play. And he would show me like different things in practice. Like is uh, how he played in practice, how he performed in, in the game. So he would show me like different techniques and stuff like that. And they would just keep encouraging me. They would never really hard on me. Like if I didn't want to do something, they weren't gonna make me do anything like that. They, but they they would tell me like if I want to be great, this is how this is how you gonna do it. Just learning from those guys and just implemented it into my game. So I think they, um, my uncle and my, my dad, they're, they're going to be a big part of my success. And I know you've talked a lot about wanting to be the greatest, right? So I'm curious, what does that mean to you? What is that bar that you've set for yourself and, and how do you achieve that? Greatness comes from being consistently good, you know what I'm saying? Executing every every single game, every single practice plan, how you want to play the game. And I think um, that only comes from uh, time. So if I'm good, this game just consistently keep getting good, you know, keep making the plays that come my way and not trying to force anything like I did last game. So I think, um, you know, just make the tackles that come my way, uh, make the interceptions that come my way. Don't try to force it. Um, you just do everything my coaches tell me to do and keep improving my game, keep elevating my game each and every day. You mentioned Darrell Revis. I'm curious what other corners do you look at, you know, whether it's guys playing today, guys that played 15 years ago which guys do you take the most from and, and what do you take from watching them play um I think I watched Jalen Ramsey Patrick Peterson and Darius the most um I think those guys were very good at press technique I think I think that's my strength uh, in playing football is press um but I also love their the toughness and confidence they play with they um they, they felt like nobody could beat them or they did get beat you know it's play the next play it's just like nothing ever happened so that's what I take away from their game. And they also have the ability to play the ball, which is a very big part of my game. You know, what I'm trying to implement my game is playing the ball, um, their ball skills. So that's what I'm trying to show off um, this season. Yeah, it's interesting. You were named Florida's representative to the SEC Football Leadership Council as a sophomore. And that sounds like something that would be mostly upperclassmen, uh, which is pretty rare. So I'm curious how that opportunity came about and, and what it means for you to, to serve in that role. Uh, Vernell Brown asked me if I wanted to do it. 
Um, they said they elected me because, you know, they felt like I'm a guy that works hard and could accomplish his goals at UF and, um, you know, I stay out of trouble and do what I'm, what I'm, at, what I'm supposed to do, what I'm asked to do. And, you know, I, I performed well on the field my freshman year, so they thought I was a guy, a good candidate for it. And I was um, humbled to be um, nominated, so I took it. What's that been like? I mean, what what have you, I know it's obviously, again, COVID's changed things, but, you know, what kind of meetings do you guys have? What do you talk about? What Have you made any friends from that, from other schools you maybe wouldn't have expected to, to connect with? Um, we talked about just uh, issues in the SEC, what we were like changed. What do you think uh, they could improve? Things like that. Um, I met a lot, a lot of um, people from different teams. You know, Kiaris Jackson, who we played, we just played against Georgia. Um, Alante Taylor, uh, he plays at Tennessee. And many more uh, friends from just being in the SEC council. Does that have any, I mean, does that make you think about leadership roles in the future? Like how is being on that maybe change your perspective and, and change some some goals that you have? Yeah, it definitely shows me that like um, football definitely gives you a voice. Mm-hmm. And if you use it the right way, you know, many more open many more doors and opportunities and people you'll meet and um, just use it to my advantage, I guess. Uh, I've got a couple fun questions for you. This is the pandemic pick section we've done with all your teammates. If you were forced to quarantine with one teammate for three to four months, who would you choose and why? One teammate. That's hard. Is it easier to think of it the other way? Someone you could not have spent three or four months with quarantined? Definitely, definitely couldn't spend months with Marco. Marco is too <laughs> different. Marco is too different. But I probably I probably would say I probably would say uh I'm not sure who I would spend quarantine with. I'm not sure about that. Definitely on Marco. We too different. We do two different off the field people. What like how what what makes you guys so different? Because that, that was that was a quick answer. That was a quick answer on Marco. Marco's my guy, but I just he just <laughs> he just we just different like music and move like everything. He's just he just we just two different people, I guess. What's some stuff you really like that Marco doesn't like? Uh, like rappers. Marco likes different rappers. He, I don't even, I don't even know what type of music Marco. He's <laughs> some weird music. Uh, just, I don't know how we think it's just different. But when we get on the field, like it's like he's super smart uh, analyzing things and stuff like that on the field, football field. But he's off the field. He's, I don't know, he's a character. He's fun. <laughs> um, couple final things for you. You know, obviously the offense this team has is one of the best in the nation, if not the best. Um, what do you gain from practicing against them every day? And how much does it help you to have that good of an offense to test yourself against? I get to cover Kyle Pitts, Kadarius Tony, Trey Grimes, uh, Justin Shorter, like all these guys are different types of receivers. And I think that really helps with my game because when I go to, when I play a different team, you know, every week, I'm not going to play the the same type of receiver. And the SEC is big and fast. Like, you usually see big and fast receivers. Like, I get to play against Cal Pitts and Kadarius Tony. They're two different types of receivers. And I think that really helps in my game because, like, you know, you got to play those guys differently. And I think that really helps a lot. And then definitely with Cal Trash, like, I can have the best coverage in the world. And he could just place the ball anywhere, like, away from me. Like, he's, he, he's the best player I think I've ever seen, just placing the ball wherever he wants to. So I think um, that definitely helps with my game, too. It makes me such a better uh, player just because of, just because of Kyle Trash, honestly. Which guy is the toughest to cover in practice? We won't we won't tell him you said so, but curious which guy is the toughest to match up with. Toughest to match up with? I don't know. I feel like I can guard all of them, but honestly, um, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure because like I really I don't really think like that. I feel like if, if I trust my if I do if I do everything I've, I've been taught like my technique, I feel like. 
can't nobody really catch a ball on me. That's how I feel. But in practice, you know, Trey Grimes and Cal Pitts have caught a few balls on them, you know. I think those guys are, you know, big body receivers. That, and then having Cal tries doesn't help either, you know what I'm saying? He places the ball perfectly away from me. So I think those guys, just just their body type, you know, it's hard for a good place ball to get, you know, caught. I mean, for for me to, you know, make a play on. So. Has Kadarius broken your ankles at all? Like any 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 shaky moments with Kadarius making his moves out there in practice? No, 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 no. But he does to a lot of people, though. But no, Kadarius, no. Well, actually, actually, I was going to make a tackle one day in practice. He did break my ankles. I'm not going to lie. He did. He did. He did. But not like route running-wise, no. Okay. But no, it's it's not a regular occurrence, right? Just happened just a couple times. No, he definitely he definitely broke my ankles one time. Running. I was trying to tackle him in practice. <laughs> yeah, he definitely did break my ankles one time, though. I'm not even going to lie. Um. You know, this past week, uh, you, know, you talked about going up against Kyle Trask every day. Uh, you got to play against the guy you used to go up against in practice in Felipe. How how weird was that, especially on the defensive side? I mean, when you're basically planning all week, how are we going to stop this guy? And that guy used to be the leader of your team. Um, I think it was just like, I think every week is the same for us. You know, we're trying to go 1-0 and and we're not really focused on relationships we had in the past. Like, we're just trying to... Uh, figure out how we're going to win this game and how we're going to execute on all cylinders to get better from last week. And I think, um, you know, I hate that I gave him a touchdown because I thought I knew a play and I gave him a free, easy touchdown. <laughs> um, I thought they were running a slant based on the formation and what I studied all week. So I just sat on the route and they just ran something totally different. And, that, and that's just something I have to learn from. But I think it was I think it was just a normal game for us, honestly. Hmm. Um, you're looking at your defense right now. Obviously, there's room to improve. There always is. You've said so. What do you think those areas are that you're most focused on improving, and what steps do you take to get there? Um, I feel like for us to uh, win an SC championship and a national championship, I think we have to eliminate our explosive plays. I think we had like three explosive plays. I know I gave up one, and then there were two more in, uh, in the game last week. I think just cutting down our explosive plays to one or nine, you know, honestly. And then – just everybody keep executing and communicating. I think it makes a great defense. I think we played good against Georgia. Uh, see, you can see it like the first, the first like drive, the first two, two three drives when that Georgia went up 14-0. It was no, it was no like excitement and communication. We didn't come out, you know, firing on all cylinders. So when we learn how to come out and start the game, how, how we finish the game, that's when we'll be a, a great team. Final question for you. Uh, this week, you're going on the road. You're playing Vanderbilt. They haven't won a game. It's going to be at 11 a.m. local time. There's going to be probably a 1,000 people there. I'm telling you things that you know. I'm just curious, with all of these things built into this weekend, what are the coaches doing to ensure that you guys keep your eye on the ball and you stay focused when there's obviously a lot of reasons that you might not? It's the lead, like Our coaches are really um, pressing out on the leaders um, to, to treat this game like it's the SC championship games because we can't have like it's the SEC like anything is possible if you don't come out and play. So the leaders like the leaders like Ventura, Miller, Zach Carter, uh, Sean Davis, uh, Marco, myself, uh, and a few like Evan McPherson, like a few others, you know, like this, like keep repeating it over and over. It's like anything's possible in the SEC. So we have to bring our A game every single week. So that's basically what they're doing. Well, make sure to dress warm. I think it's going to be pretty cold at 11 a.m. in Nashville. Um, but thank you so much for talking to us, and good luck the rest of the season. I appreciate it.
There was little doubt Florida's game against Arkansas would be all about the quarterbacks, although instead of being about Trask versus Franks, it ultimately turned into Kyle versus the field. For the first time in over a decade, Heisman talk is spreading around the swamp and the nation, and Scott Carter notes that's for obvious reasons. Yeah, when you come out and throw, what, uh, six touchdowns, five in the first half, that's going to catch people's attention, uh, Adam. And You're right, I think being that they were coming off the week against Georgia, which was a national TV game, so some people got to see him there. And, you know, he kind of registered on the radar a little bit, but then to follow that up in the uh, much ballyhooed matchup with Felipe Franks and the offense, uh, you, I, I've said this a couple other times on different radio shows this week, I thought the uh, – the first half there after what they scored all those touchdowns, he had five. I thought that was as good as Kyle Trask has looked for the Gators. Uh, and that's saying something considering he had just come off a 474 yard passing game. Uh, the offense was just humming along. And, and now he's got some numbers that when you look at them in a historical perspective, they match up well. I mean, numbers that Joe Burrow was putting up last year that I think a lot of people didn't think would be approached. And, Maybe in a month, those those numbers will, will have stood and they'll be fine. But as of right now that we're talking, Kyle Trask is on pace uh, to match those numbers. And uh, that just that's a tribute to what the Gators offense is doing, what Kyle Trask is doing. And uh, it's rare that, you know, you get a lot of the, the elements in place that they had last week with the Felipe story coming back. And, you know, Kyle is such a low-key kind of guy. He's never going to say it. But you know that that had to be such a sweet moment and performance for him. Uh, you know, I I can only imagine, man, if that was if that was Gators Chris, he would have danced all the way back to his dorm room, probably. <laughs> I think something lost in the in the shuffle with uh, Kyle Trask's uh, incredible numbers. Um, and he's getting a lot of help from his receivers. I mean, we've seen all year what, for example, Kyle Pitts has been able to do in traffic, some of the great catches he's made. Now, obviously, Pitts hasn't even been there for the last game and a half. But instead, you have guys like uh, Trayvon Grimes, incredible catch. The week before at the end of the half against Georgia, uh, Justin Shorter, the transfer from Penn State, <laughs> that was a, uh, that may have been better than Grimes's catch, uh, uh, the one he made against Ar- the one uh, uh, shorter made against Arkansas. Yeah, in traffic. I mean, we see you know Trent Whitmore early in the year uh, skying up and getting balls. Uh, Keon Zipper made a great catch for a touchdown uh, this past week. He's getting a lot of help now. Obviously, he puts them in position to succeed. People th- sometimes think that you're, that quarterbacks are just throwing throwing things up, but I mean, there's there's rhyme and reason with back shoulder throws and throwing into traffic and stuff like that because it's done in practice. And uh, these guys have an incredible trust in each other, and um, I just think that's kind of been an underappreciated kind of storyline. That being the receiving core, especially when you throw into the fact, Adam, that maybe the four best receivers on the team a year ago are all in the NFL and these mm-hmm. guys are just stepping stepping into that spot. Now, obviously, Grimes didn't go. He probably could have gone into the NFL draft, but he's become a go-to guy and certainly a bigger go-to guy as long as uh, Kyle Pitts isn't on the field. But uh, Trask getting some help, but certainly uh, it starts with him. He's the trigger man. He also uh, – the, the trust that he's develop, developed in these uh, in these really good players that he's throwing to – is is out there for everyone to see. Yeah, obviously Trask became the story uh, because of the way the game played out. But as far as the the Felipe angle, I mean, I, I guess you could say it, 
it probably went about as well as it could for everybody, right? I mean, Felipe had a good game. No one got hurt. Um, you didn't see any, you know, anything bubble up. I mean, everyone kind of did what they needed to do. And I mean, obviously Florida won by a lot, but for Arkansas, I think Felipe can be proud of the performance he had and, you know, he made some plays. So I guess as far as, you know, putting the, the bookend on that story, I mean, I, I guess it's kind of a, kind of a best case scenario for, for everybody, right? I think so. I mean, um, obviously, Florida's perspective, they liked the way it played out a lot more than Arkansas and Felipe did. But, you know, you saw the video afterward, or you may have a lot of the people who are listening to this have certainly seen it when Dan Mullen comes over to Felipe and uh, Felipe, you know, unprompted just says, hey, I I told Kyle that, you know, they might as well go ahead and give him the Heisman. Your guys' offense is just playing unbelievable. That was just one of those genuine moments that the cameras were there for, luckily. And I think, you know, a lot of times when you encounter a story like this, two quarterbacks, two very competitive guys, uh, they've said the right thing all along. But there's always, deep down, there's always a, a part of you like wondering, wonder if these guys really respect or like each other as much as, as much as they say it, as much as the coaches say. And a lot of times it's not the case, but I think in this, I think in this particular case, it's pretty legit, you know. The Gators, they have a lot of respect for Felipe Franks. You can tell a lot of the guys are still close to him. And uh, you're right; it, it was nice to see that kind of reunion there after the game. All the coaches and players coming over to say hi to their former teammate, and, and Felipe's having a, a really good year out there. He's certainly helping himself, uh, maybe as far as being a prospect in the NFL. Wasn't a, a great game by the Razorbacks. Uh, Florida just had too much uh, offensively. But yeah, Felipe, what was he? 15 out of 19, 250 yards. 250 yards, I think I looked it up. I think that would have been his fourth or fifth most he ever had with the Gators. So, I mean, wow. he put he put up a nice passing game. And uh, yeah. uh, again, it was Kyle Trask's night. And so far, uh, Kyle Trask year. Yeah, and I don't think we know, you know, the inside story of those two guys um, during their time here together. Uh, nobody knows what goes on behind behind closed doors, if you were. But um, I'll be honest with you, I, I haven't heard anything other than the fact that there was respect between those two guys. You don't, you never heard anything about, you know, Kyle Trask uh, getting all whiny and stuff that he that he wasn't getting a chance. Uh, playing behind Felipe Franks, who you know, frankly, had had some games where you know you would you would wonder uh, is, is it time for him? And and you know, Kyle Trask obviously had the tough break when he uh, I believe he broke his foot the week he was probably going to get a chance to be the starting quarterback. But um, they did have a relationship. I think that was founded in respect. And I think one of the things that kind of maybe tips that off is there was a nice tweet of the two of them hugging um, and and a comment from Ginger Franks, uh, Felipe's mom who's kind of active on Twitter, especially on game days and what have you. And I think if, if there was anything, she would know. And uh, I think that was just a nice little uh, – uh, I think that speaks to the relationship those two guys have and the respect that they have, which kind of piggybacks on the point uh, that Scott heard uh, – or that Scott just made about Felipe really being complimentary about about Kyle Trask and his, uh, his trek toward a Heisman right now. Well, and another thing I think offensively for Florida that was notable, uh, it was clear that, that Arkansas said, okay, we're going to take away the big plays down the field. 
And Dan Mullen said, okay, that's fine. We're going to run the ball more than we have all season. And really effectively, it's quite the juxtaposition because Florida struggled so mightily to run the ball last year that at points throughout the season, they essentially just abandoned it altogether and found other ways to to complement the passing game that weren't directly related to the run. Um, this is a team that, that can really run the football now. And obviously Malik Davis looks like he did as a freshman, which is great to see. Naquan Wright looks really good. Damian Pierce looks good. I mean, all of a sudden you're seeing Florida, not just about Kyle Trask, but also running the ball behind an offensive line that, that's significantly improved. They did come out against Arkansas and, you know, they tried to establish the run, especially on that first drive with Damian Pierce. At one point, I know he had four consecutive carries on that drive, finished with like 30 some yards uh, on the opening drive. And they're going to have to do that at different times. Uh, But again, no one's going to confuse this uh, offense and this team right now with the 200 yard per game rushing outfit. I mean, that's not what they are. Everything that they do, you know, in the big picture is going to be predicated on on the passing game, on the offense uh, with some runs mixed in. Uh, But yes, I think going to your point about the offensive line, another area that's been underrated somewhat in what success they've had. The offensive line has has played really well this year. Um, You know, they haven't been mentioned nearly as much as uh, last year, the year before Mullen's first two seasons. Uh, That's always a good sign for those guys. Stone Forsyth, I think at left tackle, is one of the most improved guys on the team. Came under a lot of criticism last year, uh, especially early in the season. Uh, You could tell he's really worked on his footwork and improved in that area. And Brian Johnson, the offensive coordinator, was saying this week that, you know, without a left tackle who you can depend on, uh, it's hard for a quarterback to to be comfortable in some of the things that Kyle Trask is being able to do. And so it, it, it all works together, Adam. And a lot of guys are playing at a very high level, uh, none other than Kyle Trask. And this is what it looks like of what 559 uh, yards per game over the last three games since they came back 48 points uh, per game. Uh, so uh, they are, they are getting the job done offensively uh, right now. And uh, they're going to, have to keep doing it uh, if they are wanting to uh, earn that first college football playoff berth. I mean, six six sacks this year given up. I mean, that speaks yeah. to the offensive line. But to Adam's question about running the football, I mean, you're you know they haven't had to per se. I mean, they probably would have liked to have had it against Texas A and M, but and they're going to mm-hmm. need it eventually. So mm-hmm. uh, um, they got to keep working on that running game. And, uh, and yet I know at the same time, a lot of what Dan Mullen likes to do in terms of getting the balls to running backs in space is kind of like a, a, a pseudo kind of running game in, in its own right. But I also have to credit those running backs. Uh, they're, they're really good receivers. So obviously they're doing a good job with them. The, uh, uh, two weeks ago, the Georgia game, they were wheel routing the hell out of that defense. And yeah. uh that's obviously goes back to chemistry with the with Trask and what have you, but they're going to have to run the ball eventually against a good football team if they're to achieve the goals that they're shooting for. If they're going to play in some of the bigger games that they that they aspire to play in, and uh, that was a good way to get to get it going. Arkansas wasn't a great run defense; they were a far better pass defense than run defense. And obviously, Trask made mincemeat out of their secondary. So uh, the next step of, of progression for this team would be you know, some consistency running ball, and they're certainly uh, taking some steps uh, in that direction. 
Well, another thing they're going to need is is a better defensive effort, and I think they're the first ones to acknowledge that. But uh, the the trend we've seen, and again, we saw you know slightly better performances against Georgia, um, against Missouri. Uh, but it seems like the biggest issue of this defense is that they're really susceptible to the explosive plays. Um, they're giving up a lot of explosives, two 80-plus yard touchdowns against Arkansas. And it is worth noting that collectively across college football, defense is down. And I don't know if you can attribute that to not having spring ball. I mean, there's lots of reasons people will give. But despite that, you know, Florida still has to find a way to be a little more effective defensively because the quick touchdowns, even if you got an offense as good as the Gators do, that that's not a championship formula to be given up those explosives time and time again. Yeah, that's something that, you know, Todd Grantham and the players have said that's unacceptable, giving up those big plays. They know they're going to have to be better in that area. When you're up like you were against Arkansas and you're rotating a lot of players in and out and it's not that big of a big deal. It still doesn't look very good on paper, uh, but it's an area of concern, especially, uh, you know, if you're playing a team like down the road, like they want to perhaps against Alabama uh, in the mm-hmm. SEC championship game. You're, they have an explosive offense just like Florida. Uh, but you're right. The big picture in college football, the defenses, I was just on the uh, SEC teleconference. I, we, I hung on there after Mullen and Mason. I listened to Nick Saban. And he was asked specifically about, as an old school defensive coach, does it bother you that you just see almost a lot of cheap points this year in college football? He, you know, he says, hey, you know, it's it's not his favorite thing in the world, but these days, if you hold an opposing team to 17 to 21 points, you feel pretty good that your defense has played well, and that is just where the game is. So uh, you're going to give up some big plays because the other teams are looking to make them every play almost. And the rules really benefit the offenses now to where they can open it up. And you're seeing that in the way, in the type of players that are being uh, recruited and put into skill position players. I mean, they're, they're fast, they're, they're small, they're guys who can really get down the field. Uh, they're hybrid types like Kyle Pitts who, you know, still do it underneath, but also can go downfield and make big plays. So it's just a different kind of football, Adam, but, Yes, the Gators would love uh, to cut down plays. I know that's something that they're working on. Uh, I think they feel good about the fact that they have most of their guys back now, and they're getting a little healthier on that side of the ball. Uh, Don't know about Jeremiah Moon and James Houston this week at linebacker. Uh, I think they're closer than they were last week, so we'll see. Uh, But, yeah, it's something that's going to be a talking point until they they clean it up. I remember – South Carolina game, I guess it was mid-game. A tweet went out from one of our esteemed colleagues, Mark Long from the Associated Press, Karen. If, if the Gators are expecting uh, uh, Kyrie Campbell to make a difference, uh, it's not going to make a difference for his defense. Uh, he has. He's really, really good. Right, Scott? Yeah, mm-hmm. he's had yeah. a big impact. He's had a huge impact. Uh, and it's like saying, you know, Zach Carter didn't make much of a difference for some in the half that he was out of Georgia. Yes, he did. Uh, Kyrie Campbell back um, has made a difference. Now, yes, to your explosive plays, I, I, I want to make a point. I remember Steve Spurrier's defense giving up explosive plays at times, and that's what happens when you have big leads. You know, mm-hmm. you you take chances, and teams abandon the run game, and they start chucking it downfield. And and you know, uh, there's good players on the on the other team too. I remember one 1993 Gators won the SEC. They had the uh, uh, worst pass defense in the league statistically. 
that that's going to happen when you're uh, when you're up. What was it, thirty-five to fourteen in the at, at halftime? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, forty-seven-yard touchdown on the first uh, like what five plays into the game for Felipe Franks or on his fifth snap. Uh, yeah, you know they have to do some stuff. But you know, give Franks that was a hell of a throw by him. But there's other you know the eighty-two-yard run or eighty-three-yard run where with the eighty-two-yard catch and run. Uh, yeah, you can you can clean that kind of stuff up. But I mean, sixty-three to thirty-five. I think some of that stuff can be forgiven but just like I said with the running game uh, you're gonna have to run the ball eventually yeah eventually you play some of these bigger games um, some of those bigger plays they cannot happen they will come back to bite you but having said that I think Florida will be able to make some big plays against good teams too Mm -hmm. you know looking at this weekend uh, under normal circumstances I guess you would call it a trap game in all capital letters but given Florida's schedule around this game there isn't really another one you would look forward to that you might sleep on this one for it seems like the biggest challenge for Florida at Vanderbilt is just going to be focused because of an early start, right? 11 a.m. local time because of their rules there. They're going to have less than a thousand people in the stadium. It's obviously not a very good team. Not They don't have any wins this year. So as, as we, we talked to Kyrie Elam about this, there's a lot of reasons Florida could lay an egg. Um, but you know, if, if they play it at even maybe half of their capacity, uh, they should be able to control this game rather easily when you look at all the factors playing into it. On paper, this game is what it is. You're talking about an 0-16. An um, but as Dan Mullen pointed out, you, you look at some of the numbers from uh, earlier in the season, I believe uh, uh, Vanderbilt gave Texas A&M a pretty good game earlier this season. I think the final score was 17-12 on the road at College mm-hmm. Station. Held them to 370-some uh, yards and, and, and 15 first downs. I mean, A&M a couple weeks later had, I want to say, 543 yards and 35 first downs against the Gators. So uh, I'm sure there's stuff that the coaching staff will have to keep these guys' attention span and focus where it needs to be. It's not going to be probably at, at an apex, uh, but at the same time, it's pretty simple. Whatever your goals are, uh, the big-term goals whether or the short-term goals, the long-term goals, all of them involve winning some form of championships, whether it's the East Division, the, the SEC, uh, the bigger picture, getting that first college football playoff. I mean, all of that is rolled into beating Vanderbilt, period. You, you, you lose to Vanderbilt, uh, uh, okay, maybe still win the East, uh, but who cares? So uh, it's, it's pretty self-motivating and um, – uh, you would think the Gators would be ready to play. And certainly Mullen can roll out what happened uh, two years ago up there. Not as good a Florida team, obviously. Fell behind 21-3. to three. They eventually came back to win 37-27. But uh, they left there knowing they had, been a game, they, they had been in a game. There was a good fight in that one, if you recall. Mullen and Derek Mason yelling at That's each right. other over, over something. So um, it was a competitive game up there last year. Or excuse me, two years ago. Last year – 56 nothing here at the Swamp wasn't very competitive. So uh, you got to find your happy medium and just go there uh, with your jaw set and, you know, do what you're supposed to do. Yeah, it all goes back to what Chris was saying. The Gators, they, they had their mulligan already against Texas A&M, and they've, they've worked their way back into uh, the position that they wanted to be. And the, you can't slip up. So if you can't get ready for that, that's a uh, – you got issues. I don't think that's going to be a problem. From Vanderbilt's side, off to their worst start since 1998. Uh, tough year for Derek Mason. You know, on his conference call this uh, earlier this week with the media, when he was talking about Gators and Kyle Trask, I think he brought up Joe Burrow and LSU about two or three times, how a lot of the stuff Florida's doing reminds him of that. So I'm guessing 
in his locker room, he's probably trying to get his guys fired up that, hey, you, we can make our season by going out here and spoiling uh, this guy's Heisman Trophy bid and, and their championship aspirations. So, um, you know, they, they, they have improved some lately. Um, and uh, traditionally, his teams have, have played Florida pretty tough, last year notwithstanding. Uh, so it's going to be a little different for the Gators because this is an early start, 11 a.m. in Vanderbilt. There's going to be less than 1,000 people on the stands. Uh, this is their first trip since their COVID break outbreak when they went mm-hmm. to Texas A&M. They're going to dress at the hotel uh, for the most part, go over to the game and put on their cleats and pads and stuff so they don't have to spend much time in the locker room. So they're, they're taking some precautions. It's going to be different on a lot of fronts. Uh, but I think once they get on the field, obviously they have a clear advantage, and I'd be surprised if if they walk if they don't leave Nashville with a pretty good win. Um, but again, they got to play them. That's gonna be like a high school game. You dress on the get on the bus, yeah. you know, dress <laughs> yeah. whole, carrying your shoulder pads or whatever. So there's a lot of attention on football right now for good reason, but. In this weird 2020 where the calendar is all shifted, uh, basketball is about to get rolling. We're a week away from the start of, uh, of Florida basketball. And Chris, I know you're always excited to talk Gator hoops when it's time. Here it is. And in a lot of ways for Florida, a different place, at least externally, expectation wise, going into this season with a lot of new faces. Absolutely. And um, the whole, the one of the questions about this team um you know, especially with Andrew Nemar, I'm transferring and Kerry Blackshaw Jr. having moved on, you know, and these new guys coming in, the three different, three transfers, a Juco player. So, you know, what's this rotation going to look like? I think, I think it's crystallizing a little bit. We're getting a little bit of clarity um, through the scrimmages. They've had last three Sundays, they've had scrimmages uh, where they're keeping stats and have officials and trying to make it as game-like as possible. Unlike uh, previous years, Obviously, with COVID, no one's doing the game against another – the scrimmage, the secret scrimmage against another school. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not having your exhibition game in, in, in an arena to kind of uh, break the ice. So it's all happening uh, behind the scenes in the practice facility. And right now it looks like Florida's, Florida's front line, guys, is, looks to be about um, seven or eight guys, maybe nine. Uh, and then you got guys on, on, the, on the back end whose roles are going to have to be figured out a little bit. But the, the, one of the more interesting position battles going on right now is that between uh, Omar Payne, the sophomore uh, uh, post player, against Colin Castleton, who uh, was granted immediate eligibility after transferring from Michigan. Um, Omar, about 6'10", people remember him from last year, inconsistent, had a great game against Auburn where he was nine for nine from the floor. I think he doubled, I think he had 11 rebounds that game, 19 and 11, double, double, whatever. Um, hell of a problem trying to deal with Nick Richards and Kentucky's front court down the line when Kerry Blackshear fractured his finger in that disastrous last game where Florida blew an 18 point lead in the last 12 minutes. Colin Castleton was a, a, a maybe a seven, eight minute guy at Michigan for Juwan Howard, who's from Daytona beach, but uh, he, he's going to be a factor on this on this team. He's six eleven. He's long. Uh, he, he knows how to play. He knows how to you know technically knows how to do some things. Uh, uh, basketball plays, uh, head fakes, knows how to get guys off the floor, that kind of thing. And he's you know really good teammate. So who who that starting center is, I'm not sure. But after that, you can pretty much bank that the four guys are are around whoever that uh, uh, five man is. 
are going to be guys that were here last year. Talking about Keontae Johnson, who is the SEC preseason player of the year, uh, who has just looked terrific in the preseason, aside from a couple weeks where they held him out with a turf toe. Uh, Scotty Lewis will be on the floor. Obviously, people are expecting big things out of him. I believe he would have gone into the NBA draft had COVID not uh, had so much uncertainty on and, and wiped out all the all the all the combines and what have you. Know a lot coming back from a, a surgery on a on his groin that really uh, uh, limited his 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 movement and stuff and nagged him at different times last year. He's shooting the ball really really well. And then of course uh, there'll be a lot of focus on Trey Mann, the starting point guard. Um, who's really never played a pure point guard position. He's in, in something about it with Tyree Appleby, the transfer from uh, Cleveland State. And uh, uh, Trey has held him off. Uh, Tyree's going to get a chance to play. They're going to get a chance to play together. It's going to be a very fast team. They open the, uh, the season. Mohegan Sun next week in what they're calling Bubbleville, and that's going to be nuts. It's going to be, I think, I think it's 45 games with 40-some teams, men and women actually, Wow. Over the course of 11 days. So uh, uh, we'll see what happens uh, up there. But obviously stuff could happen between now and then to put a pin and blow up Bubbleville. But they're excited. I mean, you finally got a carrot out there that maybe you can actually, instead of dangling, maybe you can grab it. And uh, that'll, that'll be when the Gators open this season. Again, it's UMass Lowell. And two days later, uh, uh, it gets real uh, against the University of Virginia because no matter how fast the Gators are going to want to play, they're going to have to play Virginia space because uh, that's what Virginia does. And that'll be a rare uh, game against a, a reigning national champion. So that'll be an interesting way to get uh, get the season off to a start and a hell of a litmus test to it. So we'll be looking at Gator hoops getting going in addition to Gator football, starting to feel a little bit more normal as we get into the latter stages here of 2020, at least on the athletic calendar. Um, I want to turn our attention to the, the PAT now. And this is something that under normal circumstances, we'd be talking about Uh, A little bit sooner, but the Heisman conversation is now swirling around Kyle Trask, although it it sort of happened quietly and gradually because he is so laid back. He is so humble in the way he goes about his business. He's not drawing a lot of attention to himself like a lot of Heisman favorites would. So what it got me thinking about was underrated athletes. Trask, I think, has fallen into that category for at least a short period of time, but even bigger picture for you guys, maybe it's someone you covered years ago that doesn't get talked about to the degree that you think they should, or someone who history is just to, to some degree not given their due. Um, when you think about underrated athletes, who comes to mind? I'll start, and this is going to sound funny, but he's about as different of a personality from Kyle Trask as you could ever imagine. And a lot of what gets talked about him is more about non-basketball stuff. But to me, Dennis Rodman was one of the great NBA players in history for what he was able to do. And he had such a unique skill set and impact on the game that it's unfortunate when people talk about him, it's mostly his crazy personality and, you know, being a sidekick with the Pistons and the Bulls when they were winning titles. That dude, I mean, if I was starting an NBA team and I could, I could, uh, have a, a clone of a one or two or three guys in history. I'm using him as one because there's no nobody ever been like him who's played in, in the NBA. Uh, mm-hmm. So he he's one guy who just immediately jumps out to my mind. I mean, I could think of uh, Tim Duncan basketball. I always thought he was underrated, but he's a great player. Mm-hmm. Football, you know, who's – I don't know. It, it, you talking about a Heisman Trophy winner? No, it could be any athlete. Any athlete. Yeah, yeah. 
I've always said whenever this conversations come up to me, like with friends or something, I've always used I've always used Rodman as my guy because I just think he his ability as a player is, is so overlooked, and he was such a great player. I wouldn't want Rodman on my team unless I had somebody with a stronger personality like Michael Jordan who can contain him because throw throw out those years of the Bulls and you know he was he was just a lunatic. Yeah. Well, the, see, that's the thing you have to. That's where the conversation. That's why it dilutes him as a player because obviously his personality is is what people remember. But I'm just the. I'm saying clone him with the clone him basketball talent. Contrast personality. Yeah, well, that's a, yeah. I mean, but it, it probably didn't happen. I mean, I I don't think Kyle Trask is going to dress it like wear a dress and pose no. on the cover of ESPN magazine or something like that. I'm going. We did. I remember at Orlando Sentinel. We did something like this, overrated, underrated. I remember like our, our underrated, I think Lenny Moore and, and Adam, you have no idea who this is because this is like history. It's, he was a <laughs> Baltimore Cole, Baltimore Cole running back back in the day who I think was like a nine time pro bowler. He had, I want to say rushed for 5,000 yards for his career, caught 6,000 yards worth of passes, scored a touchdown in 18 straight games, which I think is a uh, NFL record still, uh, over 100 touchdowns for his career. I think he he's the guy we had as uh, either number one or number two. We also had Stan Musial. Hmm. Who, uh, yeah, he, the man. He's, he's, both these guys are in the Hall of Fame, and yet Stan Musial was – like the quiet guy during an era when uh, Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams were grabbing all the headlines. Mm-hmm. And, and I think if I'm not mistaken, and I'm, go- I'm going off memory, Stan Musial played 23 seasons and was an all-star for 20. Wow. Sounds and right. when you start talking about uh, the greatest outfielders of all time, you know, you hardly ever hear about Stan Musial. One of the great hitters. I mean, Scott's a, a baseball purist. I'm not. But uh, when you think about I, I think he won – Six or seven batting titles, uh, and you just don't hear him talked about that much. So I've gone back into the 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 forties and fifties uh, with my underrated guys. Uh, or uh, so I mean, I'm, I'm sure. Is that I mean, is Tom Brady considered underrated? You think? I guess I could we could get more. Uh, uh, no, I, I don't know. He's, he's Tom underrated. Brady. Yeah, t- Tom Brady is the most uh, <laughs> underrated player. It's a good water cooler discussion, and hopefully it uh, it spurs some conversation among our listeners. Uh, but that's the end of our conversation for today. We turn our attention to this weekend, Florida Vanderbilt. Make sure to follow these guys as they cover the action at Gators Scott, at Gators Chris on Twitter. And, hey, maybe they'll even send some fleets. Fleets are all their age now on Twitter. Always good to learn new social media tricks. And, uh, of course, if you are more, if you want to keep it on a, a simpler level, just go to FloridaGators.com. All of their content will be there as well. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Adam. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice. And please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Florida travels to take on Vanderbilt Saturday at noon Eastern time, and you can follow the action on ESPN and the Gator Sports Network from Learfield IMG College. Then come back next week for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Stay safe and go Gators.